0: This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and we have a really interesting episode today. I'm kind of a science nerd in a way. And that's why I love talking with today's guest. He's part of the Mississippi State University Deer Lab crew. And these guys do a lot of research on whitetails and a whole bunch of different things. And of course, my neighbor decides to mow as I'm doing this intro. So I'm going to uh, just let that pass. Anyway, I'm too lazy to, to edit that out. So anyway, um, Bronson Strickland is today's guest. And he's been on the podcast several times before. And he's going to talk about some of the research that he has done in the past. And, and it's uh, the, the first part of this episode is a real high-level Uh, almost like a BS session about deer behavior. We talk about buck breeding and we talk about aggressive deer and how does can maybe swing one way or another when it comes to big body size or big antlers and things like that. The second half of the podcast is just questions I had about research and being able to predict deer movement or deer behavior. And And the reason I brought this up is because We've had certain companies come on before and say they have apps that can predict deer movement, right? And that, you know, if you download this app and you pay for it, you're going to be able to know when to get into the woods. And it gives you an idea of a a poor, good, great, excellent day, however they have it broken down to to go out and hunt. And I wanted to talk with Bronson, someone who has years of deer research behind them and under their belt. And... I would. I'm, I'm looking for his advice on what predictive model would be the best if it's based off collared deer movement, if it's based off weather, uh, and questions that you, the hunter, should ask before putting your faith into predictive deer. Uh, the predictive deer movement model that some of these apps have. So lots of good information on this episode. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. I know I enjoyed recording it. Uh, real quick, if you're looking for a saddle, you need to go check out Tethered, right? Great people behind that product. They have saddles, they have platforms, they have climbing sticks, all the saddle hunting accessories that you need. And it's a great, an, an additional tool for your your arsenal when you're going to, to uh, go slay the beast wasp archery love their broadheads absolutely love the boss four blade um, and actually in the last couple years i've been using the jackhammers but just for fun here comes the mower again we'll let it go by <laughs> there he comes and there he goes wasp archery and uh i have been playing around with the boss four four blade again right and i dude I, i put together a couple groups with the four blade on that i was like dang maybe i'll be going my main head will be the boss four blade this year and uh maybe i'll move away from the jackhammers either way it's a wasp head love them both They both destroy whatever they hit and, uh, you know, mechanicals and uh, uh, mechanicals and fixed blades both have their benefits and you can find out more information about what heads you may like at wasparchery.com. Discount code SN20 for 20% off. Then we have hunt stand Again, always on this, always download or always researching, always looking for access routes and that's what I did this week. Um, it was raining outside for just a little bit or, and it was hot as balls out this week. So I was sitting in in my air conditioner on my phone, scrolling, scrolling, looking around. Okay. There's a good access route. What about this tree stand location? Here's what I've seen in the past. And I put in a whole bunch of trail cameras this weekend too. So as that, that cell data starts coming in, I can see where I want to put this, uh, uh, my attention this year on some of my main farms. I lost 100 acres, so I got to go try to find new uh, property and uh, I'll be uh, accessing and using Hunt Stand quite a bit. Discount code SN20 for 20% off. Also, um, if you want to find out more information, huntstand.com. Lastly, Vortex. If you are looking for a spotting scope, binoculars rangefinders, uh rifle scopes you name it in the optics game just go check out vortexoptics.com they have what you need and they also have their vip warranty which is a lifetime warranty if you have a pair of binoculars you've bought them 20 years ago or you know whenever that whenever they first came out with their first offering and they break or bust or fail or you did it or it was an accident or whatever. All you have to do is send it in. They will fix it for free and send it back to you, right? On top of that, their customer service is impeccable and uh, you guys should really just go check out vortexoptics.com for all of your optics needs. (laughs) There's the commercials for today. Huge shout out to everybody for tuning in. Man, I hope you guys enjoy this. Huge shout out to Bronson. Please go to iTunes. Wherever you download your podcast, leave a review and a five-star review would be nice. Let everybody know how badass this podcast is and how much great information that we're putting out. Love you all. Let's get into today's episode. Three, two, one. All right. On the phone with me today. It's been a while since we've chatted. Mr. Bronson Strickland. Bronson, how are we doing, man?
1: Hey, Dan. I'm doing great. Good to talk to you. It has been a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, how's your summer going so far?
1: Hot. Ridiculously, yeah. miserably hot and humid. Heat index over 110 a lot of days. So, not fun to be outside.
0: Right. So, this it's the same thing with with Iowa, right? I mean, we complain about the weather being hot and muggy this time of year. You guys are way further south, than we are down in Mississippi and like it's always hot down there even in the winter time it's hot down there I I feel so so is this is complaining about the heat just something you deal with because I feel like if if it was so bad people would just be like up and move or is it just too hot to move
1: (laughs) yeah it, it may be too too hot to move but here's the thing Dan is uh you know when I'm watching the news in the morning I see things like, uh, I think it was Minneapolis was going to be over a hundred or maybe a heat index mm-hmm. of 110 or is setting records. So um, I think the deal with the South is it's always been hot. It's always going to be hot. We just have to endure it for a longer period of time yeah. uh, than people up North. But at the same time, uh, come February, January, February, March, sometimes I'm, Enjoying the sixty degrees when uh, y'all are living through below thirty. So yeah, there you it's go. It's a trade-off.
0: There you go. There you go. Well, um, we had some technical difficulties up f- front, so for scheduling purposes, we're going to have to skip the for- foreplay today and kind of get right into the main topic. And um, um, and I want to I want to talk a little bit. Okay, first off, just. If you guys have not heard anything I've ever done on this podcast with Bronson in the uh, in the past, he okay. Give us your your resume real quick. What do you do, um, and and what do you research and things like that? Very high level, real quick, and then uh, we'll get into the episode.
1: Okay, so my background is deer biology and management uh, was. Born in, in Georgia, so southeastern context, went to graduate school in South Texas, so Texas deer management context, PhD here in Mississippi, so back to the southeast. So studied deer in uh, dif- different ecosystems, and my job now is uh, research and outreach. So my, my friend and colleague, Steve Damaris, we co-direct the MSU Deer Lab, Steve focuses more on the research aspect of it. I collaborate with Steve on research, but my job is more focused on taking the research information we generate and distilling it in a way that people can use it and understand it.
0: Perfect. All right. Now here's the first question. All right. In the, in the whitetail woods, right? Um, especially in the content creator category, you'll hear a lot of people, and this has kind of changed over the years, but you'll hear a lot of people say, white-tailed deer do this every time or all the time uh, a deer does this thing, okay? And that could, that could be one of a thousand different things. Over the years of spending time in the, in the tree stand and observing deer behavior and the deer herd in general, um, that's not always the case, right? I found that a deer doesn't always do said thing. So my question is, is the research that you guys do in a controlled environment, um, how does that differ? Maybe it's different. Maybe it's the same in a wild environment, right? So, so how do you take what you've learned in a controlled environment and apply it to a wild ecosystem, a wild environment?
1: It's probably going to be a very unsatisfying answer, but it's likely going to be based on the context of the application. So like, for example, talking about deer behavior, how is it going to react to a particular stimulus in a controlled research setting could be very different than the way a deer would respond in the wild. And so most all of our deer, for example, are born in captivity. Uh, they're bottle fed and so they're going to have a different relationship in how they respond to fear, for example, or smell of a human being or sound. But the things we do focus on that have direct, I think, you know, 100% correspondence to the wild is things like, uh, nutrition, for example, how are they responding to, uh, either dietary improvement, or reduction. Uh, a great example, Dan, I think we talked about this in the past is what we did with our epigenetics study. And that that's a study that really could not be conducted in the wild because you need to control for nutrition. Mm-hmm. You've got to make sure all the deer have the same uh, ability to acquire the same diet. So, that that's one of those where you may say, yeah, but those are deer in captivity. But having deer in captivity enabled us to answer that question. Okay. So it, it, it's really across the board, and it's 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 a it depends answer. Gotcha, gotcha. When it comes to research, the
0: outcome, uh, you know. If you're trying to, you know, in, in a scientific equation, there's got to be variables and there's got to be what's the opposite of a variable, the the standard or the the, the, the control, thing, the control, right? So when the outcome, like, here's what I don't understand about, like, the scientific method and, and research and stuff like that is when you get a it depends answer, right? So how do you get it? How do you take an it depends answer? and then try to give an answer based off of the, the answer that you get from your research when the outcome is, it depends.
1: I, I think uh, I can draw a, a parallel to when we're in the scientific process and say writing a technical journal article and we're gonna be scrutinized and that's very healthy, we should be, but it goes out for peer review, anonymous to us. We have no idea who in the world is reviewing our work. And what we have to do is we report our results. You know, here's our hypothesis. Here's what we're doing. Here's our methods. Here's how we conducted the experiment. These are our results. And then the last part of every scientific paper is called the discussion. The discussion is where you reconcile your findings relative to what other people have found either in support or contradicting, and and you basically place a context around your findings. For example, Dan, we might say, we did this and we found this, and we think this is repeatable in the wild in the Southeastern US, in an environment like where we conducted the study in Mississippi. We have to add a caveat to say, in the UP of Michigan or in Maine, in a different ecosystem, the findings could be different because there's a different suite of predators. There's a different, uh, thermoregulation is different, on and on and on. So we we just basically have to always qualify our findings with uh, where we conducted the study. Gotcha. Okay.
0: So kind of going all over the place here, when I was, you know, I don't know if you've ever hunted um, a deer herd and had the ability to not necessarily focus. It, it's not that you're trying to do it. It's this is just the outcome of, of what happens. And let's say you you put the antlers together and you rattle, okay. And mm-hmm. there's a deer that shows up every time, right? I had a I have I've had multiple experiences with this over the years where I rattle and. the same deer will come in every single time now this this deer is not of shooter my shooter caliber and what this does is it just gives a little insight to their their personality right and then we have other deer that i've seen in the past where i've I've seen them i've tried to call at them and they they want nothing to do with any type of calling right giving a little bit of insight into their their quote-unquote personality have you guys done any type of study um on your personality or like on deer individual personality and how that how that reacts to the rest of the herd.
1: Uh kind of we're we're just wrapping up and we're actually using that terminology we're calling it personality relative to movement behavior. And and so what we're seeing and I think a lot of people are seeing this with the GPS data. It's just opened so many eyes in, into deer behavior and deer movements. We have homebodies, Dan. We, we've yeah. got some bucks that after they disperse, they they're there. They're we we say they're like Norm on on Cheers. They go to the same bar. They go to the same seat. That they're very predictable. Yes. We've got some that are seasonally that way, meaning. Uh, pre-rut, rut, post-rut, they're gonna have some excursions. So they they deviate from their normal pattern. And then we've got some bucks like we've put on social media that, that just pick up and move. I mean, it, almost a migration. That they will literally go 10 miles away from where their spring and summer home range is to where their fall winter. You know, we've got one that crosses the Mississippi River twice a year between summer and fall home ranges. And we're just calling that they have different personalities. We're, we're probably never going to understand the why we, we understand they're doing it. And we're describing this behavior exists. Why is a particular buck? Does he fall into that category? I, I don't think we'll ever know. Dan, like you mentioned earlier too, with our, in our deer pants, we see that with aggressiveness yeah, as well. That was my next question. We have some that are bullies they're bullies to other bucks, they're bullies to does. I mean, when, when the testosterone is flowing in the breeding season, they're, they're just a pain to be around. We have some that are, that are a lot more docile. We have some with the external cues we get that, hey, there's a doe in heat and every buck ought to be paying attention to her. But it may just be the aggressive bucks at that time that are paying attention to her. The, the more passive bucks are sitting back and waiting Yes. <laughs> we, just, we don't have any, uh, it, maybe there's a relationship to a blood testosterone level at the time. But we really don't know.
0: My, and that that is my question is, you know, we've all, we all understand it out in the wild, you know, that a, a bigger antler deer isn't always the most dominant of uh, creatures out in the woods when it comes to the herd itself. When it comes to the term aggression and, you know, what you guys have witnessed in the the pens, does aggression usually lead to that buck maybe either being in charge or being the dominant buck or leading to more breeding opportunities?
1: We, we did see something like that. Um, it wasn't exactly, it's kind of hard to quantify the, the aggression, but w- what we did find um, the, the single most important indicator of breeding success, at least in, in our study, in our research facility was, was body weight, body mass okay. age specifically. So if you have a bunch of mature bucks together, a bunch of middle aged bucks together, their, their body weight is going to be the best predictor, but there's also some aggression interacting with that. But what we see over the breeding season is that being aggressive and defending your territory, it does take take its toll on your body and on your body weight. And so sometimes we would see a shift throughout the breeding season where the bucks that were big and aggressive at the beginning are really worn down over the course of the, of the rut. And you'll see a change to where some of these bucks that were very docile at the beginning, then they have breeding opportunities uh, at the end. And, you know, evolutionarily, that may be a very viable strategy. You're going to fall into one or the other. You're, you're hedging your bets. Yeah. I might not get it on the front end, but I'm going to get it on the back end.
0: Yeah, it's almost like that uh, that old saying, right? Or it's like uh, the, young, the young bull says, hey, let's run down the hill and let's breed all of those cows. Meanwhile, the old bull says, or, or I'm going to breed one of those cows. And the, the old bull's like, let's walk down the hill and breed them all right? So yes. like two completely different approaches, just like almost people, right? I mean, people yep. approach things, everything different, every decision that they make in, in the world different. Now, with with that said, um, so, so body weight could be the, like body size could be the ultimate um, breeding factor. Uh, is there a is there a correlation between age, body weight? Like, if you if you were to put, let's just say, a two, three, four-year-old in the in a pen together, maybe all of them for some reason had the same body size or, or things like that. What is what is the ultimate determining factor in in who would who would breed that? Let's say one doe in that pen, or if they were all chasing one doe, or do you have any information like that?
1: I I don't know if I've, if we've done anything to specifically quantify it, but, but I'll give you my educated guess based on what we've seen and experienced. It's uh, I'm going to use that term again, the interaction because both are at play. It's going to be their body size. It's going to be their aggression, their willingness to want to fight. And and keep in mind, fighting comes at a risk Yes. When, when, you know, every fall when you see an eyeball, that that's been gouged out that, that, that fight not came at a risk. And, and then also antlers play a role into that as well, but not from the perspective of don't, don't expect this correlation between inches of antler and breeding success. What I mean is that in general, does the buck have headgear that is going to offer him leverage in a fight? Cause that's really all the antlers are in that case. It's leverage twisting and pushing. And so you have the aggression you have the body weight and you have the headgear and the antlers and and, and that's typically going to indicate who's going to be successful who's going to be dominant and, and dan I'll, I'll remind you you know we did an experiment a while back heck uh, seven eight years ago where we actually manipulated antler size so we took the same size buck, same age buck, same size buck, and we cut off the antlers and switched them around. And so we had the, the same size buck with say 110 B and C, 120 and one with a 160. And then we paired them up beside does that are in heat, in standing heat. And most every time the, the doe favored sidled up to the buck that had the large antlers but, but we were controlling for body size in that context. So we, we really think that does aren't looking at bucks and assessing that it's a, it's a 150 versus a 140 or a 160 versus a 150. I don't think they have the acuity, you know, to, to yeah. really differentiate that it's just that it is antlers indicative of a mature buck or an older age buck relative relative to antlers indicative of a young buck and when you pair it up like that they choose the older experienced buck so antlers and body size and aggression i think are all playing a role and interacting did you guys ever do a study where
0: uh you removed the antlers altogether to see it what a what a doe's reaction would be if a buck didn't have antlers Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America N.A. member FDIC. Yeah, the
1: the aforementioned study where we were just measuring body weight and breeding success, the antlers were removed. Okay. in, in that for that experiment. Yeah. And then
0: they would lead they the does would lean towards the bigger body size.
1: Yeah, and in that in that experiment, the bucks were in the pen with the doe. Okay. So breeding could actually take place. When we manipulated antlers, we had to have a a study design where a doe could choose A or B. It's like those studies with mice where you go down the corridor and you got to go to the left or to the right. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So we had a doe and estrus in the middle and to her left and to her right were two different bucks. Gotcha. Displaying different characteristics.
0: Okay. And they and she would choose the bigger body size or the bigger antlers. Yes. Okay. In yep. that. In that controlled. Okay. That's really. Right. That's really. But what. What you're taking out of the equation at that point is aggression, and um, so if it was the doe's ultimate choice, she would go for body size and or uh, antler size.
1: Yeah that, that that that's that's what we found. Okay. And, and we think would would be advantageous. Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. So.
0: But that, does, that doesn't always mean, I mean, that doesn't always mean that that particular buck gets to breed because if you added in aggression, and this is just hypothetical, the outcome could be different if the smaller bodied sized or the smaller antler, a deer was potentially more aggressive.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't expect that if the buck was a lot smaller. Right. You know, he's 10% smaller, but 20% more aggressive. Yeah. But I don't think you're going to see that with a five and a half year old buck versus a two and a half year old buck, for example.
0: Right. Yeah. I had a, I had a deer several years ago and I still think about him every once in a while, especially when I'm in the the tree stand seeing a young deer come in and maybe grunt or chase it, you know, that, that mid-October timeframe where the buck is ready to breed, but the does are not. Mm -hmm. And he's, he was a three-year-old and he He, he had a, I'm guessing like a, a a low one thirties style rack, um, decent body size for a three-year-old, you know, nothing too crazy big, but definitely not small. Uh, maybe to the untrained eye, a guy could look at him and go, Hey, that's a four-year-old. Okay. So right on that flirting with that, that, uh, that border right there, he would come in to certain fields or certain staging areas that I was hunting and he controlled it. And he was a three-year-old and he would control it uh, enough to where he would make a racket. And I don't know if it was because other deer didn't, like other bucks didn't want to be around him. But I saw him square up and posture up next to deer that were bigger than him, both antler and body size. And he was, I'm, I think, I'm thinking he was the dominant buck, like even though he was young he showed enough aggression that maybe the other deer that were in his area were docile enough to say, you know what, I don't want to mess with him. And I'm assuming he he got the breeding opportunities, even though he, I guess he, you know, there's a lot that happens in the woods when, you know, it's nighttime or things, you know, things like that. Another deer could come in and just kick his ass. But he was, he. I felt like he was the dominant buck because of his, aggression. Now, I don't know if there's a question there, but I've seen that play out in the woods. And so that's why that line, I was interested in that line of questioning.
1: Well, let me give you, uh, I'll give you my personal experience. I I remember being so troubled. I was an undergraduate at the time. So many, many, many years ago, but I was so troubled by this. I could not make it square up in my brain. And uh, it was a very similar situation, Dan, where I was in the stand and it was a, one of those wonderful mornings where I'm getting to see deer and a lot of deer behavior. So I'm, you know, got my binocular and I'm, I'm zooming in and watching this really cool stuff. And it was a middle-aged buck and he was making a rub just, yeah. just seeing and watching that. About that time I hear a, a deer running. And by all accounts, it, it, it's a doe displaying that, that she's an estrus, you know, and sure enough, the doe comes trotting by me. And, and then I hear more deer coming. I had a bow in my hand. I like, right, get ready. Here it comes. It's going to be a bigger buck following this doe in heat. And I, I get ready and here comes this yearling spike. <laughs> and the, the doe is in the does about 20, 30 yards for me. And that older buck is about 20 to 30 yards on the other side. So the older buck is like 60 yards from me. And I'm just, I'm waiting. I'm going, okay, well, this buck is going to stop rubbing his antlers, and he's going to chase this doe. She's obviously in heat. This little buck is chasing her. He paid no attention. I mean, he literally turned around, looked at her, stuck his nose in the air, and went back to rubbing his antler. Meanwhile, that little yearling buck is just annoying the heck out of her and and chased her out of sight. And I was like, how how can that be? That doe is obviously in heat. Why did that buck... And I went and talked to my advisor at the time and his answer was pretty clear. He says, it's probably just experience. He's probably assessing at the time that that doe is just coming in to, into estrus. She's not in standing heat yet. And he's going to know which way she goes. He's can follow up with her later. Yeah. But he's not going to waste his time right now. Yeah. And this young, inexperienced yearling, you know, he has no idea. Yeah.
0: That uh, that that exact same scenario happened with a 190 inch deer one year. Um, I had a I had a group of three does, a doe group, walk by me. My wind, dude, my wind was perfect, Bronson. I I I, I it, this giant shows up and he's he's following these this doe group or no he showed up first and he was in the thicket and he was kind of just. He made a scrape, a very small scrape. He was kind of rubbing, not nothing aggressive, right? Just kind of observing the area. He was looking into the timber, the open timber. Here comes this group of three does. He was downwind of them, and they all walked, worked by me, twenty-three yards. I can still remember it, twenty-three yards broadside. And I go, it's gonna happen. He had his, he had his head up. He lip curled, and he walked the opposite direction. And I'm just, and, and so that right there is a perfect example of what you just mentioned, like this buck. And at the time I think he was an eight, eight year old, he knew those deer were not standing right now. Mm -hmm. Those does were not ready to stand and he's not going to chase them. He'll get them the next. He'll get them when they are. Right. And so, and so the, the other little deer in the area that were pestering them, like you said, it wouldn't have been a problem for this buck to come in and be like, uh,
1: you're in my spot, buddy, you know, like, yeah, get out of here.
0: One, one posture and they're gone type deal, you know?
1: And and then Dana, it kind of does beg the question when when you do these studies, you know, genetic analyses reveal that uh, even in populations, like take your classic South Texas scenario where half your bucks are mature, but you will still get the genetic signature every single time where some younger yearling and two-year-old bucks are still breeding. And so based on what we're talking about, you think now, now how can that be? And, and the the reason that happens is that it, it might be very opportunistic for that young buck to behave that way because their breeding opportunities are opportunistic. Yeah. So, You know, it's a function of how many does on a particular day or week or whatever are simultaneously in heat. There's only so many mature bucks that can cover those does that are in estrus. And if you have additional does that are in estrus that aren't being courted by a mature buck, that's where the young bucks get their opportunity. So maybe that is that's why they're zigzagging all over the place looking for these opportunities, because They have to find a vacant doe that's not being covered by an older buck. Yeah, and, I, and again, I've seen that, right? Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen that, hey, how did he get so
0: lucky? I, I see some, you know, spike spike buck or, or forky breeding uh, a younger doe, right? And I'm just like, Jesus, man, you would think there'd yeah. be something out here chasing him, but they're probably consumed with, you know, if, if there is a and i think there is in in the environment where i hunt you know there's the buck doe ratio is off so that means that a majority if i had to guess uh during peak breeding uh the majority of the bucks are going to have that opportunity that you talked about right so right so all right um i want to talk about predictive modeling OK, you guys have done a lot of research um, using collared deer studies, talking about movement, talking about, you know, increase of movement, talking about lulls, you know, like, uh, you know, you hear the, the term lull and, and things like that when it comes to deer movement, per se. All right. Mm-hmm. So th- there are these apps. There's multiple apps that have come out where the predictive model is all based off of collared deer studies. And, and that's telling hunters you should or should not. Uh, get in the woods today or the the likelihood of deer movement is good, uh, poor, whatever. You know, you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. My question is, when it comes to predictive modeling uh, based off of uh, deer, collared deer, is there is there something that we should watch out for when um, utilizing or putting faith in that kind of technology
1: yeah I I would say uh how definitive the the prediction is would would scare me away and what I mean by that is you know Dan with with all the deer we've had collared over the years for to say that on these particular conditions environmental conditions deer aren't going to move Mm -hmm. that should that should be a siren that, that, that just can't be because deer move every single day. What, what's, what's more likely going on are just tendencies or, or increased behavioral response on a particular day. And, And then you have to be, uh, I guess, thinking about how big of a difference between quote a low deer movement day and a high deer movement day is 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 gonna motivate you to get in the woods here's here's what i mean so stuff we'll look at is like uh yeah you might come up with statistically that there's a difference on a particular day yep deer did move more on that day but then you have to look at what we call and research the effect size what what's the deviation from the norm what would they normally do and so you might say Yep, they did move more on this day, but it was only 5% more. So I can sit back and say, from a statistical standpoint, scientific standpoint, I can say, yep, on this particular day with these particular conditions, deer are going to move more. But the next question is, how much more? And is a 5 or 10% chance, is that enough? Well, that's really, I think, based on you and, and how, how you process that information. So here's an example. It might be that I've got three days. It's coming up this weekend. I've I've got three potential days. I can only hunt one. Well, I'm going to choose to hunt the day where there might be that 10% chance or 20% chance that deer might move more. So that was really long winded, Dan, but I guess to circle back to your question, um, it would scare me if it was a a yes or no, zero or one type. More binary answer. If it were binary, I would move away. Yeah. So
0: how would a guy, you know, all the research that you've done, how would a guy try to decipher what uh, is considered dear, good deer movement? Okay. So let's just say this. I download an app. It tells me I'm going to, um. Uh, there is a, it's a, let's just say there's three options. There's poor, good, and great, okay? Uh, and it's telling me today is a good day, but tomorrow is going to be a great day. What, what kind of questions should I be asking either myself or the maybe even the, the people who come up with this predictive model of what the difference between poor, good, and great deer movement is
1: that's uh that's a really good question and uh, (laughs) i really don't have an answer for you uh at this point um it 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 may simply be that dan Mm -hmm. i mean it may be simply asking them what what it what's the difference um you know based on their the algorithms that are that are used to predict you know what is the what's the likelihood of seeing deer on a poor day Versus the likelihood of seeing deer or buck movement on a good day. I think you would just have to pose that question to them.
0: Yeah. If. If there was a. Let's just compare two predictive models for a second. And I don't know if you guys have done any research on this. We're going to have one that is collared deer movement. And then one that is a predictive model based off weather patterns. Is there one that. You would say would lead someone to a, a more—I don't know what the word is—accurate uh, prediction of deer movement. If is it actual deer movement, or could it? Could you also get away with a predictive model based off of uh, weather patterns?
1: I think Dan, reframing the question just a little bit. Yep. I, I think I would put more weight into. A model derived from the area that you hunt yeah so if I'm in Florida I'm probably gonna go with more southeastern data sets and models derived from that yep verse versus something say in Michigan okay okay and, and the, the weather extremes there are going to be completely different so I think the answer is kind of implicit there that you know somebody in Florida or South Carolina is not dealing with the same weather intensity or it's completely different. Yeah. You know, you're dealing with heat in the South versus snow and cold up North. Yeah.
0: Let me ask you this. This is, and you can even pass on this question if if uh, you want, because it, it's, it's kind of complicated. It's a simple question, but it, the answer could be complicated. If you knowing what you know about Deer movement, deer behavior, how weather may or may not affect them, how time of year may or may not affect deer movement, herd behavior, and whatnot. how How would you design an algorithm or a um, uh, uh, an equation that would go into an app telling me the end user how? I, you know, when I should get into the woods, is there, is there an accurate model that you think that, I don't know if you were, if you had the knowledge or if you had the power to do so, what does that equation look like?
1: I, I I think very simply, and it would it wouldn't be simple. The calculations wouldn't be simple, yeah. but uh, I think it would account for the the time of year relative to deer biology. So oftentimes it, it can be very easy to make a mistake attributing deer movement relative to weather when the underlying condition was deer movement was relative to the rut. So you you can, you can, you can get trapped with correlation versus causation pretty easily. So you might be making correlations with, Hey, on these really cool days, deer are moving more, but underlying that is that, well, you also are moving into that two to three week period. That's the peak of the rut. You see what I mean? Right, right. And so what we try to do is what is our baseline for deer movement? What is the average deer movement from day to day, week to week, month to month? And then when you establish what the baseline is, you will have little, uh, troughs and valleys, peaks and valleys from day to day spikes. And what caused the deviation from norm? Can we find something that's related to the deviation from norm that that would be how I would approach it.
0: Yeah, so I, I call the you know I'd call that movement killers or something like that, right? So so based off of the time of year, we can say you know hey four days from now it should be better deer hunting than it was the previous four days, right? So every day closer to peak breeding is potentially better than the previous day. Is that an accurate statement?
1: Say that one more time, Dan. Okay. I don't know if I understood that.
0: So it's October first. And we're going to we're going to we're going to compare October 1st to October 2nd or October 3rd. okay? And so peak breeding is, let's just say, the 14th of November. Every day leading up to peak breeding should theoretically be better than the previous day. Is that an accurate statement?
1: Yes, it would. The devil would be in the details of quantifying how much better on a daily scale. Right. So I would, I would think more of a weekly scale. You could see something tangible versus a daily scale. Okay. So weekly, right? So then, um, at that point,
0: would the opposite be true on the back end of that breeding? Every every week further away from peak breeding would be um, a, a worse time to
1: hunt. Um. If you wanted to relate it to the acreage deer is covering or the total distance they are moving, yes, okay. okay. and then in in your
0: in your experience with the studies that you've done, what have been some I don't know movement killers like an uh, in, in event, whether that's weather or pressure or something that just, Either halts it or slows it down for a period of time.
1: Dan, we really don't see that with our data, with a southeastern context. Okay. We we really don't see a movement killer whatsoever. And I, I just very simply relate that by, you know, deer have to eat every day. They are going to move every single day. And usually that is going to be around sunup and sundown. I mean, if there is anything at all you can take to the bank, that is it. Deer are going to move every day and it's going to be greater on average around sunup and around sundown. And that relationship will be intensified as you get closer to the peak of the rut. Gotcha. And then it will diminish after the rut. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. Well, um, I'll, I'll tell you this, man, this is a short and sweet episode. Uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to uh, hop on and just chat about this. I, and this is one of those episodes where I had an idea pop into my head and I wanted to talk about it with an expert. That expert is you. So thanks for uh, hopping on and chatting with us today.
1: Hey, yeah, you bet, Dan. Happy to. And regarding this deer movement stuff we've been talking about, we are, it's literally on my computer right now. I'm looking at it. We're working on a a document that's summarizing one of these big studies that we did. And many of the questions you asked, we have quantified those data and generated graphs, and that is going to be in a document. We'll make an announcement, hopefully before deer season, and it'll be on our social media. So on a msu deer lab on facebook or instagram or any of those we'll provide a link it'll be something free to download so that's just something to keep your eye on
0: perfect well i tell you what i would love to have you back on in the future and we can talk about that study
1: absolutely happy to
0: yep hey bronson really appreciate it
1: sure thing man anytime
0: and the the second i hit record again here comes the lawnmower and we're doing the outro now (laughs) it's getting ridiculous at this point um, huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download. Huge shout out to Tethered Wasp, Stan and Vortex. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. Huge shout out to Bronson and the work that him and his team are doing over there there at Mississippi State University Deer Lab. Uh, just great inf- info, right? Someone cares enough about the deer to, to do the research on them and, and get that information back to us. Like Bronson said, I don't know if he said it while recording or after we were recording but they got some really cool intel getting their information and data getting calculated as we speak and they're going to be putting out that out in a journal here pretty soon so stay tuned for another episode with bronson and uh, man good vibes in good vibes out let's kick this week off on a positive note wear your safety harness and we'll talk to you next time
1: Thank you.